Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you truly have done great things. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your faithfulness. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come together and to worship you and to be reminded of the mercy that we have all received because of your shed blood on the cross for us. Father, for that, we, we are totally indebted to you. We thank you and praise you for that. Father, help us to be a people that proclaims your name and proclaims the great things that you have done. Lord, remind us of those things that we can uh, tell others. And Father, as we get prepared to hear your word, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would help us to settle our hearts and minds to hear from you. Father, that we would set aside any distractions. Lord, that if there's anything that, uh, that I've put together that is of myself, that you would eliminate anything and everything that is of you, that it would be glorifying to you, and that we would respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in each one of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated, and the children can be dismissed for Children's Church. And I'm happy to uh, announce that I got to see Pastor Aaron today, so he is doing better, him and his family, and uh, we're grateful for that. Continue to pray for his continued recovery, and we will have uh, a couple more Sundays. Mark Moyer is going to come preach for us uh, as Aaron finishes up his study break and, and regains his strength. So continue to pray for him for that. But today is the uh, final message from our Good Question series, where we've looked at some of the questions that Jesus used. And you may remember, a few weeks back, we looked at one, one of the messages, was looking at an informative question that he used, and then a uh, discerning question. And that dialogue served to bring them to a point of declaring their belief. And then the second message we talked about uh, was looking how Jesus used a rhetorical question uh, to make a point, and it was emphasizing what he was teaching, and it brought both the listener and the hearer into evaluating the question for themselves. So today we're going to see how Questions can turn an aggressive and maybe even an anti-Christian situation into a meaningful conversation. You know, questions um, can keep people from tuning you out. Um, a person's brain, is, it's hard to ignore a question. It's easier to ignore a statement, but it's harder to ignore a question. Um, so when you ask a question, though, then the person is immediately involved in the conversation at the level that they want to be involved. Their answers then will show you where to go next in the conversation. So today we're going to look at a familiar story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning there, we'll look a little bit of the setting that we have. Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. If you were to go back to Luke 9, um, verse 51, it says, When the days were coming to a close 
for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So he sent messengers ahead of him, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him, because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So Jesus was rejected by the Samaritans, because he's a Jew, he's headed to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans and the Jews had a very adversarial relationship. You may recall the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And uh, Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water, and she says in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And then later in that same interaction, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So Samaritans and Jews were rivals, uh, both ethnically and religiously. The Samaritans had intermarried with the Assyrians. And when the Israelites came back from Babylon, uh, you read in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah how they uh, gave the Jews fits when they were trying to rebuild the wall. Their animosity ran deep. Even both of them claiming that the other's worship uh, was at the improper place. The Samaritans were worshiping at Mount Gerizim, the Jews in Jerusalem. And each one of them claimed the other was illegitimate. So following the Samaritan rejection, then we get to chapter 10, and and, uh, Jesus is sending out the 72 And he sent them out without money, without a traveling bag, even without sandals. They were to heal the sick. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God had come near. If a town didn't didn't accept them, they were to wipe the dust off their feet and move on to the next one. And then the 70 have returned in verse 17. And we see that there's a lot of joy. They're saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us uh, in your name. And uh, we see even joy from Jesus as he worships the Father. He says in verse 18, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. I don't know what the snakes and scorpions about. We're going to skip that. Uh, However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And um, he says, don't rejoice over the power and gifts that you were given, but rejoice that your name is in heaven. And I think that's instructive for us today, as we, we don't glory in our gifts. Instead, we glory in the fact that we are his, that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then verse 21, we see where Jesus is worshiping the Father. At the time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. 
No one knows the Father unless the Son reveals Him. This is where our evangelism and our apologetics breaks down if we mistakenly think that it's all about how well we speak the message or how well we argue our apologetic uh, that they're going to turn to the Lord. Jesus says, no one will see and understand unless he reveals it to them. Now, it's still our responsibility to go. We are the hands and feet to share the gospel message, but it's the Lord Jesus who opens their eyes to the truth. But Jesus then turns to the disciples there and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. Prophets and kings wanted to see those things and they didn't see them or hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. And then that brings us to our passage where uh, the expert in the law now wants to test Jesus. He's, he's seeing what's going on, and now he wants to challenge Jesus. So Luke 10, 25. And an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He asked. How do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, you told him, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus took up the question and said, well, man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of the robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, they fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. So our first point here is the challenging question that the expert of the law brings, and your version may say he's a lawyer. The point is he's an expert in the Mosaic law, and he wants to put Jesus to the test. He wants to challenge Jesus with his question, and so Jesus answers his question with a question. So the expert of the law says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's trying to put the, put the spotlight on Jesus to answer, and Jesus very uh, effectively then responds with the question, moving the spotlight back to the expert of the law. And in essence, he says, you're the expert. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, you may have experienced a similar type of situation where someone throws out a question to sort of put you on the spot. Or maybe they want to, maybe they want to know the answer, but ultimately their real motivation is more about testing what do you know. Often they're designed to make you look foolish, and sometimes 
People even throw out questions that just try to shut down the conversation as a challenge. But here Jesus responds to him and says, so what's written in the law? How do you read it? And verse 27, the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So his answer is a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are the vertical related to our relationship with God. The other six relate to our horizontal relationship to one another. The expert's response is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The Deuteronomy passage focuses on the love, on, yeah, the love you Lord your God with all your being, just like what he quoted here. But he said, these words are to be on your heart. You are to teach them to your children when you sit, when you walk along the road, when you lie down. And it's a passage that focuses on remembering God through your obedience and teaching your children. The Leviticus passage is a passage that's focused on how you treat your fellow man. And it's instructive to say, don't act unjustly, don't judge your neighbor unfairly, don't be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich, don't harbor hatred, don't take revenge or bear a grudge, etc. And then the summary statement is, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's important for us to understand is these are not academic statements. God's love is meant to be an active love. He did not merely say to love, he demonstrated his love. His greatest act of love was on the cross. And these commands to love God with your whole being, with everything that you are, is to impact your way of life. As you love God, it should reflect then in your love for your fellow man. So in verse 28, Jesus affirms him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So it's one thing to have the right answer, but it's another thing to have the right actions. And the expert's question to test Jesus is how to have eternal life. Now it's interesting, and this question is actually asked in several of the Gospels in different places. How, what do I need to do to have, inherit eternal life? And so the question to me is, you don't do anything to inherit. Anyways, that's an aside. But Jesus knew what he needed to know, that it was not something that you earn. We can't earn eternal life. Now, the law requires you to keep it perfectly. Leviticus 8.5 says, by keeping God's statutes and ordinances, a person will live if he does them. And You and I know that no one except Jesus can keep it perfectly. You think you can, I, I got some things I'd like to talk with you about. Consider just a couple commandments, right? Do, you, do not bear false witness. Have you ever lied? Guilty. Do not steal. Have you ever taken anything that's not yours, even unintentionally and didn't return it? Guilty. James 2.10 spells it out really clear for us. Whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
So Jesus' statement, do this and live, is not telling us how to have eternal life. It points to the fact that the expert cannot keep it, and he stands in need of a Savior. And the whole sacrificial system taught them that they needed to have a blood sacrifice to receive forgiveness for their sins. So we saw in this first point the challenging question from the expert that he returned, Jesus returned with a question, the expert answers correctly, Jesus affirms the answer and tells him, live it out. So then this brings us to the second question, the rationalizing question in verse 29. It says, wanting to justify himself. So the expert's feeling the heat in this interchange. Like a lawyer, he might be looking for some technicality. He knows he's not perfect. I mean, the audience who even heard this question knows no one's perfect. He wants to move the spotlight off of him, so he says, who is my neighbor? First question wasn't going so well for him, so now he wants to vindicate himself by thinking he's smart. So he's looking outwardly. Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I need to love? What are the boundaries for who I should love? Who's my neighbor? Well, the Jews might answer, one of my fellow Jews. And Jesus takes up the question in verse 30, which I find an interesting statement. It's common in their culture for rabbis to teach with the use of questions and answer. It's also common to challenge one's understanding by using just questions. So at times we see even where the scribes and the Pharisees use questions to try to trap Jesus. But here Jesus takes up the question and then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we read it. Jesus focuses here on three people. We have the priest, we have the Levite. Both would be the expected ones to do the right thing. But instead, they don't even check on him to even know if he's alive. They cross on the other side, not even wanting to make eye contact, going about their business. And of course, the priest and the Levite who know the law, they would live by it, wouldn't they? It's what they teach. It's what they've given their life for. How about you and me? How often do we find ways to justify not engaging with someone in need? Maybe we rationalize. I can't be late. I've got a meeting. I've got an appointment. I'm going to church. I don't want to get involved. They've probably done something to cause themselves this pain. You might even look at an addict and say, well, look, look at what you did to yourself. It might be costly for you to get involved. It might be messy to deal with someone's mess. The priest and the Levite represent who this expert of the law is. They represent the expert's hypocrisy. They're fellow Jews, just like the expert who knew what was required of him. So Jesus' use of the Samaritan in the story highlights the Jews' hypocrisy. They're known for despising the Samaritans. The Jews and Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with each other. And here the hero of the story, their enemy, is a Samaritan. So if anyone had an excuse for passing a wounded Jew, it would be a Samaritan. But unlike the priest and the Levite, I find it very interesting that in this passage it says, when he, he saw the man, 
when the Samaritan saw the man. The others just say when he saw him. And it's very specific. When he saw the man, he had compassion. At great cost to himself, the Samaritan got involved. He used his own means to bandage, to pour oil and wine on the wounds, put him on his donkey to take him to an inn. And I've wondered, if you came across this scene, what might you think? Samaritan with a half-dead Jew on his donkey? What judgments might we say? Or would we say, well, look at what that man is doing to take care of him. This Samaritan not only takes him to an inn, he takes care of him. He probably made sure he's had something to eat. Maybe he had to redo bandages. Looks like he potentially spent the night with him because verse 35 tells us the next day. So we know that he was there for a while. We don't know how much time it took. Certainly took some time. He'd have to figure out how to treat his wounds, how to bandage him, traveling back miles back to the inn. And then the next day, he gives the innkeeper a couple days' worth of wages to care for him with the promise that he'd come back and cover any additional expenses to, to care for this man. It's an open arrangement to make sure this half-dead man can recover and be cared for. And then we get to Jesus' final question at the end of this story. It has a very obvious point, verses 36 and 37. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The one who showed mercy, he says. Which of the three proved to be a neighbor? Jesus has changed the focus from who do I have to love to who is living out the command of love your neighbor. He crosses social and ethnic and religious boundaries in this story. And the expert in the law now gets the point. But it's interesting to notice when he responds, he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one, the one who showed mercy. And so then Jesus admonishes him and says, go and do the same. So the stranger became the neighbor. Christian love is not to have narrow boundaries of race and sect and religious views and political views. The expert wanted to know who his neighbor was because he didn't want to love anyone he didn't need to love. But Jesus shatters those boundaries from who to love and instead points to the one showing love. I have a couple personal illustrations that I want to share. I want to share them with you as humbly as I know how. They are not intended to say, look at what I've done. As a matter of fact, the Lord's convicted me in both cases that I didn't do enough. First one is a young man who, in January 2019, came into my office, and it was kind of like this. I mean, it was they were talking about a week's worth of sub-zero weather and high wind chills, and it's going to go on for a week. And he shows up to my office, and he's homeless. The shelters are full, and he's just looking for a place to stay. And I reached out to what little contacts that I had and didn't have anything for him. And so I thought, well, you know, it's cold out. I, I could take him down and put him up for a night. 
And so he got in the truck, and I took him down to the motel. But the whole time I was going down there, the Lord was just reminding me, one night's not enough. This is going to be cold for a week. And uh, the likelihood that in one night that there would be a shelter open is pretty slim to none at this time of, of year when they're full. So we get down there, and I start to pull in, and the motel right behind had a sign that said a weekly rate. So I said, okay, Lord. So I pull in there, I'm up for a week, talk about the church, pray with him. I left feeling pretty good about myself, you know, that I'd, I'd help this man. And uh, even praising the Lord for the fact that he had given me means that I could do that and it wouldn't uh, terribly impact my budget and uh, was just really grateful. But then later, the Lord convicted me. I didn't do enough. He would have been there for a week. I could have went there at lunch and said, hey, I'll be back at noon tomorrow. I'll take you to lunch. Could have spent more time with him. Could have prayed with him. Could have done that maybe for five days. But I didn't make that effort. I did just what I had to do. Another one is my uncle. And uh, my uncle, back in the 70s, went off to college, came back, and declared that he was gay. My, all my mom's family, his brothers and sisters, mom and dad, all believers, all go to church. And um, they've not treated him very well. If he would show up, they would tolerate him. Um, one of his brothers has not spoken to him since. This is, what, 40 years, 50 years? And I went off to the Army, uh, got married, had raised my family, moved around, um, so, and he moved on to the South, and we just weren't in areas where we um, connected with one another. Um, a year and a half ago, uh, we were going to Atlanta and, uh, to see my wife's brother, and I just, I just felt like, you know, I really need to reach out to him. He's only a couple hours from there. If we're going to go down there, we need to make it time to do it. So we borrowed her, my brother-in-law's car and went and spent a half a day and saw, met him and, and his partner. And it was a nice visit. I've always liked my uncle. Um, but the, there was one thing that he, a comment that he made. He didn't make it maliciously. It was just in conversation. But he knew to the year and to the month when the last person in his family had reached out to him. And that broke my heart. A Christian family that can't share love to their own family member. And so I was pretty glad that I had opportunity to spend time with him and then come to find out a few months later on, on Christmas Eve, his partner died of cancer. Um, and I happened to find out through my aunt, and so I contacted him, and um, then after COVID hit, I, you know, I contacted him again. I've just had opportunity to continue to build on that relationship, um, but the Lord has, uh, has really convicted me of the time that I have lost because of my own judgmental attitudes, because of my lack of reaching out. <clears throat> What does this teach us today? The 
point of the law is not to teach us how to earn eternal life. The law is our tutor to teach us that we need a Savior. We don't measure up to God's law. Galatians tells us that those who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. And that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us when he hung on the cross. No one is made right with God by obeying the law. The law does not make us right with God. Faith in Jesus does. We're not saved by what we have done for God. We're saved by what God has done for us. It doesn't teach us what God's law demands, but what it does, should teach us is how to seek God's mercy. In the Gospel of Matthew, Peter asks the question, how often must I forgive someone? And Jesus' response is 70 times 7. And then he tells a parable of the unjust servant who owed his master like $1,000. I'm sure back then that was a lot of money. And uh, he begged for forgiveness, and the master totally forgave him. And then he turns around to his own um, slave, servant rather, I guess it says, and who owed him like $100, and he throws the book at him. So when his master heard that, he said, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus has given us mercy. Now, I was reading a Paul Tripp devotional recently. and What he said about mercy, I think, is very instructive to us at this point. And he says, showing mercy towards others is not natural for us. It's natural to make sure all our needs are met. It's natural to hoard what you have and fear that at some point you won't have enough. It's natural to carry around with you a long catalog of things that you want for yourself. It's natural to be more in tune with your feelings and with the feelings of others. It's natural to want mercy for yourself, but justice for others. It's natural to be aware of the sin of others and yet blind to your own. If we're ever going to be a people of mercy, we need bountiful mercy ourselves Because what stands in the way of us being a community of mercy is ourselves. We celebrate God's mercy, but we scream at our children when they mess up. We sing of amazing grace, but we punish our spouses with silence when they offend us. We praise God for His love, but forsake a friendship because they were momentarily disloyal. We're thankful we've been forgiven, but say that a person who's suffering the result of his decision is getting what he deserves. We bask in God's grace, but we throw the law at others. We simply are not that good at mercy because we tend to see ourselves as more deserving than the poor and the needy. When God's call of mercy collides with our lack of mercy, then we begin to see ourselves accurately. We begin to confess that we don't have inside of us what God requires. We begin to admit to ourselves and others that we can't live up to God's standard. So we cry out for the very thing that we refuse to give others, mercy. 
as we begin to remember that God's mercy is your only hope and you meditate on the grandeur of the mercy that's been showered on you. And when we do that, then we begin to want to help others experience that same mercy. The degree that we forget God's mercy given to us makes it easier for us to not give mercy to others. We find ourselves in daily need of God's work of mercy in order for us to even do his work of mercy. It's reciprocal. As we remember God's mercy, we can extend it to others. As we extend it to others, we are reminded of the mercy that we've received in Christ. And so, we get to our big idea today. And it's just a reflective thought for us to take home. How are you proving to be a neighbor? It's not about what do you confess with God's help. How are you loving others? Without boundaries of who do I have to love, it's are you proving, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word to teach us more about yourself. And Father, as we continue to look at what you have done for us, we realize what a great mercy, what a great gift that you have given us to those who have surrendered their heart and life to you. And Father, when we think about the mercy that you have given us, we should be compelled to show that love to others. Father, forgive us for the times that we've been selfish or self-centered and justified why we shouldn't. And convict us and encourage us and empower us to live the commands that you have asked us to live to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as ourselves. And Father, only in your strength and your power can we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.